In this episode of Between the Lines, IDS Fellow Shandana Momad interviews Adam Orber, Associate Professor, School of International Service, American University in Washington, about his book, Demanding Development, The Politics of Public Goods Provisions in India's Urban Slums. In his book, Adam says that India's urban slums exhibit dramatic variation in their access to local public goods and services, including paved roads, piped water, rubbish removal, sewers and streetlights. He states that why are some vulnerable communities able to demand and secure development from the state while others fail? Drawing on more than two years of field work in the North Indian cities of Bhopal and Jaipur, demanding development will fundamentally change the debate on the politics of the urban poor. Hi everyone um, and uh, and welcome to this um, podcast today. I'm Shandana Khan uh, Momanth. I'm a research fellow in the governance cluster at the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex. And I am incredibly excited to be talking today with Dr. Adam Orbach, whose work I have followed closely over many years now and whose work has certainly inspired my own current research in many ways. Adam is at the American University in DC and is an award-winning scholar of politics and development. The book that we're discussing today is Demanding Development, the Politics of Public Goods Provision in India's Urban Slums. It was published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. It's, the, the book is based on Adam's doctoral dissertation that won a number of awards from the American Political Science Association, including its Gabriel A. Armand um, Award for the best dissertation in comparative politics. And his articles have also won awards at APSA and just recently the 2021 AGPS uh, American General Political Science Best Article Award. So for Anyone interested in distributive um, politics, demanding development is a must read. It takes us deep into how politics functions on a daily basis for people living in India's many urban slums. It is a book about how leaders emerge from the bottom up, about how they help create the extensive networks through which India's parties function, and about how public goods and services are provided to India's urban poor through these networks. Of particular interest to me is the fact that it is about vote bank politics. It's a term that we who study South Asia use so often um, to describe its politics, but there is, there is so little that's actually been written about it. And here now in Adam's book is so much rich detail about what goes on inside vote banks, what holds them together and how they condition how the world's largest democracy functions. So, um, Thank you again for being here. And I thought a good place to start off would be to just ask you to provide us with the big findings and the main story of your book um, to start things off. Um, you, have, you have such a clear finding on what really matters for, for vote bank politics in, in India. And um, I thought I would ask you to set that out for our audience before we get into the particular aspects of it. Absolutely. And Shandana, you know, please let me start by thanking you so much for having me. It's, it's especially exciting to be talking with you about my book. Um, you know, I've learned so much from your research on really similar issues in villages in, in rural Punjab, uh, Pakistan. Uh, so it's, it's just so wonderful to be here with you. So, you know, my book really centers on a, on a puzzle um, that emerges from India's, you know, really vast population of slum settlements, uh, which are estimated to house about 65 million people um, as per India's most recent census. Um, and that puzzle is India's urban slums vary dramatically um, in their access to really basic public goods and services. 
So I'm talking about things here like paved roads, um, access to piped water, trash collection, street lights, um, underground sewers, government medical camps. So some neighborhoods, some slum settlements have access to all these goods and services. Um, they've been able to demand and secure them and they almost cease to look like what you and I might sort of understand to be a slum settlement. Um, others lack all these goods and services um, and they're just as squalid um, and underdeveloped as they were when migrants first settled them 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, most are somewhere in between, you know, where access to some of these goods and services are more spotty. So these divergences are, you know, especially puzzling because these settlements, they, they, they share a number of vulnerabilities. So first, you know, residents face informality in housing. You know, they have weak or absent formal property rights over the land. Um, and this generates sort of a constant fear and a looming threat of eviction. You know, the government bulldozers can come and knock down the structures. Um, also, residents overwhelmingly work in India's, you know, really expansive and, and precarious informal economy um, that has, you know, little in the way of any sort of social safety net. Um, they also face state institutions that are highly dismissive and discretionary towards the poor. Um, and so my book asks, why then have some of these vulnerable communities been able to demand and secure development from the state while others have failed to? You know, to secure forms of local public goods that are, you know, at the center of, you know, daily well-being and human dignity. So drawing on two years of uh, ethnographic fieldwork and survey research um, in, in Bhopal and Jaipur, which are, are two cities in northern India, I argue in the book that, you know, much of this variation can be explained by the uneven spread of party organizational networks across settlements. So just to quickly explain what I mean by party organizational networks, you know, that's because that's kind of a mouthful, you know, political parties in urban India, you know, are, are really organized in many of the same ways that say the Democratic Party was organized in New York City or Chicago during America's Gilded Age period, you know, all the way up to the Second World War or how you know, the Peronist party was, or, is, was organized in Buenos Aires in Argentina, you know, so richly described by scholars like Javier Hierro um, in Poor People's Politics. You know, these and so many other examples around the world, these are examples of machine parties. So party organizations in India cities, like any machine party, are defined by their hierarchical sort of pyramidal shape. Um, so if you and I went into most sort of slum settlements in India, um, we would encounter local party workers um, part of these party organizations, you know, living and operating at the grassroots level for the party organization. Uh, these networks then stretch upward to the, you know, the highest levels of leadership, uh, of political leadership in the city. So, and they, they do a lot of activities that we, we know quite well from, from the literature on distributed politics. So during elections, party workers are expected to mobilize voters behind their party banner, you know, bring them out to rallies, uh, bring them out to the polls on election day. Between elections, um, they are supposed to help voters with gaining access to various state services because doing so in an unmediated way is, is very difficult for a lot of residents. Um, and they, they do this oftentimes for a fee um, and expectations that, you know, that that voter will support their party afterwards. So these two-way activities you know, between voters and politicians are really why these actors are often referred to as brokers. So yeah, there's this, there's this large comparative literature on you know, machine parties and political brokers you know, in political science um, you know, and in related disciplines. But what's been so strikingly underappreciated in the literature though, and what my book demonstrates is that the personnel infrastructure, you know, the actual people that populate these networks and their influence in the distributed politics of the city widely vary across neighborhoods with really important implications for local developments. 
So to provide a, you know, a concrete example, I conducted a census of party workers across 111 slum settlements that I surveyed for my book. So almost one fifth of these communities have no party workers whatsoever. There's no one living and operating the settlement that has you know, an actual position in a party and has those upward linkages that can help residents solve problems. Other settlements are at the sort of polar opposite extreme. You know, almost every alleyway that you go down has a party worker living in it, you know, with a party symbol painted on their front door and their, you know, and their, their party position. Um, and most are sort of somewhere in between, you know, with some middling presence of party workers. So I refer to this variable as the, the density of party worker networks in my book. So what I argue and find in the book um, is that settlements with dense networks of these party workers um, have several advantages that over time lead to higher levels of local development. So first, settlements with dense party worker networks, it generates an environment of really intense competition among these party workers for a following, um, which pushes them to be sort of more responsive and active problem solvers than they probably otherwise would be. Because um, not being an active problem solver, not helping residents get things for the settlements, um, will lead those residents to shift their support elsewhere. You know, if I stop doing things for residents or I'm transgressing on them, you know, everyone's going to turn to Shandana, you know, who's much more sort of active and, um, you know, taking up people's sort of problems and, and bringing them to higher levels of politics. Um, you know, and so this creates a degree of informal bottom-up accountability in political networks that we usually think are totally absent of them. Um, second, settlements with dense party worker networks have multiple nodes of upward connectivity. So residents, you know, seeing this through the eyes of residents, they have multiple avenues, multiple people that they can turn to with diverse partisan and highly personalized connections to politicians and bureaucrats in the city to help them sort of solve their problems. Um, and so, you know, residents, you know, don't have, don't have all their eggs in one basket. You know, you could say that there's multiple party workers with those linkages. Third, settlements with dense party worker networks have a stronger capacity to mobilize. Uh, for collective action and protest. That when something happens in the settlements, you know, the monsoon rains come and wash away the electricity line um, or the water line breaks, you know, the bulldozers, uh, you know, are, are coming to evict the settlement. That party workers not only can mobilize residents and draw on their networks to mobilize residents, but they can also call in larger party organizations in the city to put on sort of public displays of what we would say in Hindi would be Lok Shakti, people power. Um, you know, here's an angry group of, you know, voters um, and, and, you know, we'll, we'll do something at the polls if you don't listen to our problems. So just to conclude, you know, this sort of really brief overview, you know, what I find is qualitatively and quantitatively that settlements with dense networks of these party workers have succeeded more in securing public services, you know, even after controlling for a number of important factors like the income and education of residents, levels of local social capital, electoral competition you know, at higher levels of politics, like at the municipal ward or the assembly constituency, um, you know, the age of the settlement, what type of land it's settled on. Um, you know, subsequent chapters ask then, you know, where do these networks come from and why do they vary? Um, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll sort of save that answer for later, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you. And we're definitely going to get deeper into that story as well as the methods that allowed you to get such a clear answer to that puzzle that you set up very early in, in the book. But first of all, I'd like to start with what I like to call the origin story. So why India? Why Jaipur and Bhopal? And what exactly is the path that led you to writing this book in particular? Oh, geez. Yeah, I guess it depends on how far back you want to go. I mean, I think a lot of this is uh, growing up in, in central uh, New Jersey, right outside of New York City, where, you know, a really large proportion of my, my middle school and high school were, 
um, students whose parents either migrated from somewhere in South Asia or they themselves were from somewhere in South Asia. But yeah, no, I studied abroad in Jaipur in college um, and just you know fell in love with being there and learning about politics and society there and learning Hindi um, and a little bit of Urdu um, and you know just kept wanting to go back. But I think more immediately for the book, um, there were there were two experiences that really shaped this. Um, one was an internship in graduate school at the National Institute for Urban Affairs in Delhi, um, where we were getting all the survey data back from cities throughout India um, as part of the Jawaharlal Nehru National Urban Renewal Mission, which at that point was like you know the um, the most unprecedentedly large sort of urban development program in India to date. Um, and you know the survey data on some settlements in cities, um, it, it was just you know really striking to me that not only across cities, but within cities, within municipal wards, settlements that had emerged at the exact same time um, had such you know, splintered access to these basic public goods and services. So you know, inspired by that, I started just going to, you know, as part of sort of pre-dissertation fieldwork trips, I started just going to settlements. Um, and one was particularly influential. Um, it was a, uh, a large slum settlement very close to where I was living in Eastern Jaipur along the mountain range that sort of lines that part of the city. And I started interacting with, and then in, sort of more formally interviewing a, the informal leader of that settlement, uh, this guy named Raju, who was, I think, one or two years older than me. Um, but you know, his responsibilities you know, far dwarfed my own. I mean, he had recently been elected as the adyaksh, the president of the settlement, um, and was tasked with basically pushing back against an eviction threat by the forest department, um, who sort of governed that part of the land. Um, but uh, I mean, the way that he came to power in an informal election where you know, residents were um, actually coming up with their own sort of paper ballots, they invited the police to oversee this election, totally informal, outside of the purview of the state, um, to create this sort of um, you know, leader who, who then had really deep ties with the, the BJP to solve all these problems. It really sort of inspired me to look further into you know, how do these communities informally govern themselves? Um, you know, how do I explain this kind of, you know, meaningful agency on the part of ordinary residents and their leaders. Um, you know, how does it, this informal governance then sort of connect to outcomes and in, in, in local development? So you've sort of already answered what I wanted to ask next, but I wonder if you'd, uh, if, if that's really how you'd answer it. So you, you deal both with a very particular form of politics in a very particular space. And I wondered whether your interest in the politics came first or your interest in that space, the, the urban slums of India, or what you very pointedly call squatter settlements in urban India, which one came first? Because when, when I was sort of thinking about um, rural politics, it was very much explaining a type of politics that took me to the particular location then to look at it. But it seems from what you just said is that the location came first for you and then the sort of uh, form of politics emerged. Yeah, I really do think it, it I, think, I think it was that. Um, I think it was a, um, an interest and, you know, and concern for the specific um, you know, spatial units, um, you know, the actual neighborhoods. Um, you know, and of course, you know, this was in the middle of graduate school, so I was reading about sort of distributed politics and clientelism and, you know, the political economy of development, but um, it was really a sort of a, a question driven, um, you know, dissertation and now book, um, you know, seeking to understand the nature of informal governance in these spaces um, and, and how they get access to infrastructure and services. Um, so I think, I think it really was much more of a, an interest with the, with the settlements and, you know, I'm so glad that you mentioned squatter settlements in particular. I mean, um, you know, for ease of sort of exposition, I, I you know, you know, we can sort of um, refer to these places as slum settlements because that's how they're officially categorized, you know, by the government of India and you know UN Habitat. But um, you know, 
and I'm not the first to argue this, you know, a, a large literature on urban informality, you know, clearly sort of shows that, you know, these poor, low income informal settlements, um, you know, there's many different types of urban poverty pockets. Um, and it's really important to, you know, define and delineate, you know, what you're studying because they vary in terms of their social and economic integration in the city, their histories. Yeah. Okay, so I want to spend a little bit more time on that particular location for your book. Um, and the question that I've sort of grappled with for some time is, in how do you think this quarter settlement as a location, as a space, changes things for the people that live there as compared to equally poor urban populations that live in other parts of the same city? And I'm asking this question particularly to highlight how important space can be in understanding politics um, and how that generates very different experiences within the same constituencies. That is such a fascinating question. And, and I think it's something that, um, you know, political scientists, um, you know, don't um, dwell enough on, I think. Um, and, you know, related disciplines of geography and sociology, anthropology are, I think, are, are much more advanced in thinking about sort of the, the place-based nature, um, you know, of, of, of political phenomena. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the neighborhood um, is such an important sociological and political unit in India's cities. Um, you know, it, it determines, you know, the, the demographics of the neighborhood, sort of who's migrating there, um, you know, potential levels of stigma in the distributed politics of the city, um, especially when you're talking about, you know, squat, slum and squatter settlements, um, you know, the ways that politicians approach those neighborhoods, uh, the type of land category that they're on. Um, if, if, it's, if it's sort of an illegal settlement, is it on Sarkari, you know, government land? Um, is it on private land? What, are, what is the nature of environmental threats in that area, squatter settlements are, you know, not coincidentally often located on riverbeds and mountainsides, you know, next to trash dumps or next to railroad tracks, you know, because these are areas that are otherwise undesirable, you know, for people in the city that that might be able to afford a sort of more propertyed um, area. So, um, you know, I'm so glad you asked this. I mean, that the spatial nature, you know, of this is so important, and it's, um, you know, it makes me think um, of a paper that I recently uh, um, co-authored with Gabby Crooks Wisner. Um, where, we, where we were able to put our, um, our research together. She had done her field work at, a, at almost the exact same time in rural Rajasthan, uh, while mine was sort of in, you know, in Jaipur and Bhopal, um, in, in Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh. Um, and we found really um, striking differences um, among similarly poor populations across the urban-rural divide um, in their attitudes um, and levels of despondency um, about, you know, will the state give me attention? So 12% of the people in my survey think that if they went by themselves to a government official, that they would actually get attention. Um, and you know, I, I'm sure you've, you've seen some more sort of scenes like this you know, in, in, in government offices where you know, uh, low-income citizens who are oftentimes sort of lower caste or, or Muslim um, in, in these two cities that I study in India, you know, being treated with sort of significant disrespect, um, you know, being turned away after waiting for hours. Um, and so there's immense amounts of despondency um, among sort of the, uh, the urban sample. Um, and they're much more likely to turn to brokers um, than sort of what Gabby found in rural India. And what, how we explain this is um, differences in levels of decentralization. And this gets to your question on you know, the place-based nature of these questions. I mean, decentralization has, has been taken much more seriously and has been much deeper in rural India. Um, you know, manifest in terms of public spending and this, the magnitude of constituencies are much smaller. Um, they're more accessible. Um, there's much more sort of prog um, public programs flowing through them. Um, so, 
yeah, I mean, you know, not not all of India's urban poor live in slums, and not everybody living in slums is experiencing grinding poverty. Um, and I think it's extremely important to consider these sort of the, the geographic and spatial nature of where different populations are located, because um, it, it determines so much of the political economy um, of the area. I'm really glad you mentioned your paper uh, with Gabby because that gets at such an important separation um, variation between um, different parts of India, urban and rural in particular. But what's so powerful about your book is that you're getting at that variation within the same cities and not just between settlements that are informal and those that are formal, but actually variation also across the same kind of settlements and then bringing it to this form of um, politics. Um, so uh, you've already spoken about this a little bit, but I really did want to highlight that a really powerful idea of variation in political mobilization um, and in public service delivery lies at the very heart of your book and the fact that things are not the same everywhere in India. And uh, so the, uh, what, I, what I wanted to move towards was, was thinking a little bit about the methods of what sorts of patterns is this approach able to reveal um, because of where you placed this analysis um, that we would not see if it were in a different unit, if, if your unit of analysis was different. Um, in your book, you say, you, I couldn't have done this by looking at individuals or households. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, you know, I um, dwelt on this, you know, for, for, for so long. I mean, you know, uh, going back what, what is now sort of a decade on, you know, the classic trade-off between sort of going deep um, and doing something sort of more broad. Um, and you know what I tried my best to do, you know, in the in the fieldwork and data collection and in the book is to try to draw on sort of the strengths of both of those um, to address sort of the weakness of the other. So you know, there's a lot of incredible ethnographies of sort of single um, you know slum settlements or favelas. You know, not only in India but but elsewhere. Um, in fact, actually, some of my you know, favorite books were um, written about informal settlements in, in in Karachi. You know, even going back to the, the 1980s. So I learned a lot from from those too. But you know, having some degree of comparison, um, you know, allows us to, to look at this sort of fragmented access to services that you would of course miss if you only looked at an individual settlement. Um, and so what I tried to do was, you know, do these ethnographic case studies um, across eight um, different settlements. Um, you know, I spent about a year and a half, you know, looking into these eight settlements to really delve into their histories. Um, how did they get from point A where they were all settled in sort of the late 1970s to point B, when I'm doing my field work in the you know early 2010s, um, you know how has informal leadership emerged? Um, how have they built connections with political parties? Why have some and not others been access to been able to access these goods and services? Um, and, and and I really wanted to have that sort of part of the the field work and data collection be highly inductive. Um, you know we know so little about these spaces. I, I didn't want to go in with you know tons of um, you know assumptions. You know of course you know. You know, but of course there is a large literature that gave, you know, me and would give me and others, you know, strong priors, but, um, but then to take those findings and sort of, you know, tie my hands behind my back and test them um, in a larger sample of 111 settlements to sort of see are, are these sort of associations and processes and outcomes that I'm seeing in this um, smaller uh, sample um, that I studied more intensively, are they playing out sort of at the, in this, in this larger sort of sense. Um, and yeah, again, you know, and again, I'm I'm so happy that you asked about sort of the unit of analysis because I mean that too was something I needed to hammer out, especially sort of in the early months of my field work. I mean, is it the household? You know, is it the individual? Is it the neighborhood? Um, but it just it just kept being repeated. You know, whether it be sort of interviews with um, you know city politicians who would talk about their constituencies and move across named settlements 
um, that they had sort of intimate knowledge about as a neighborhood, um, or more from the bottom up of, of residents identifying with their settlements, you know, identifying with the social networks of the settlement, the history of the settlement, the unique vulnerabilities that they face as a neighborhood. Um, it kept pushing me towards, you know, looking at this unit as, as a point of collective action and organization. I'm going to go on that point deeper into the methods you used in this book. I mean, just the variety of methods is absolutely staggering. And I'm going to spell this out for our audience a little bit. So you spend 15 months doing ethnographic work before getting to the largest survey of over 2,500 households in 111 settlements in these two cities, Jaipur and Bhopal. But then you use so many other embedded methods within these two broad types. So you have eight case studies of eight uh, settlements that I found so fascinating. Um, archival data, you use satellite imagery, you have oral histories, and two that really struck me, um, you have a census of party workers and you tell us this is possibly the first that you know of. And Travis walks um, to map your outcome, something that we use very excitedly at IDS in a lot of our work. And I quote from the book here, a research assistant and I crossed every alleyway in the 111 settlements to note the exact location of streetlights and paved roads. This is, this is so impressive. Why did you think all of this was required? And I wanted to ask you in particular about the process of decision-making that's involved here as a researcher. Did you know all this when you started or were these decisions you took along the way? China, th thank you so much for asking about this. Um, and it's, um, you know, going back to being, you know, especially excited to talk to you about this um, as, a, as a fellow um, person who's a fan of doing sort of intensive, sustained, you know, field work in the communities that we, that we study and care so much about. You know, I think a lot of this was born out of necessity. You know, these, these neighborhoods, because of their informality, there's simply very, very little data on them. Um, if you don't go and collect things yourself, um, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing to work with. Um, and, you know, as, as I'm sure you sort of experience, you know, in your own research too, you sort of turn over one rock and then you realize there's, there's others to turn over and sort of, you know, just keeps leading you down this sort of uh, pathway. But yeah, I was very lucky, you know, in, in graduate school to have, you know, dissertation committee members that really sort of encouraged me to go do, you know, go disappear for a few years and, you know, do your field work. And, you know, and if, if you're talking about the same things that you were during your dissertation proposal before you've done any field work, you know, at, you know, after two years, we know we will know that you did a bad job. You know, go learn new things. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, um, the you know, the, you know, as I sort of mentioned earlier, I mean, I I really wanted to set aside this um, sort of larger period of time, and and was was privileged to to get a few fellowships that sort of allowed me to to spend all this time. And of course, as a graduate student, you you know, you can spend all this time looking, you know, walking around looking for streetlights and stuff. Um, you know, I think th those days have probably come, come and gone, but. Um, yeah, you know, so, you know, each of these sort of um, sources of data gave sort of these unique insights, you know, so the, the satellite imagery, the traverse walks, you know, to get a very, very concrete sense of what is the exact level of infrastructural development and public services that are available here, you know, down to the individual streetlight. Um, and is that streetlight sort of working or not? Um, one of the most fascinating sources of data, though, that was totally unanticipated prior to my field work. Um, was you know what ended up being thousands of paper documents um, that were really carefully archived um, by the slum leaders in these settlements, um, and it got to the point where I could essentially assume you know before you know I had even met sort of a prominent slum leader that they had these sort of archives, um, and so you know what this would look like is is usually sort of a 
a big folder of you know all the petitions that they've sent you know going back all the way to the 1980s and 1970s in some periods of time um, you know to get water and electricity and roads and streetlights uh, community meeting notes um, you know many of these communities have associations um, that are called uh, vikas samitis uh, or mohola sudarn samitis you know neighborhood development associations um, where they would keep sort of careful documentation of you know community meeting notes keeping political ephemera you know, old political party posters, um, uh, you know, party manifestos. Um, and so this, the, you know, these informal archives, you know, as I refer to them, you know, really helped me sort of um, triangulating them with oral histories, reconstruct the histories of these communities that don't have any sort of written history. You can't go to a formal archive and expect to get anything, you know, on these micro neighborhoods that are so informal. Um, so yeah, it, um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, again, such a such a privilege to be able to spend so much time, um, you know, with the communities um, and, and, you know, really taking seriously their history and, you know, doing the ethnographic work um, and then, you know, piecing it all together at the end, you know, of course, was a um, was a challenge. But, um, yeah, I think that the, the multi-method sort of uh, facets of the project were absolutely necessary, because if I had only done the survey, I mean, that's that's only cross-sectional. Um, I mean, that's, that's the best that you can do, but there's not, there's not going to be some sort of, you know, magical panel data set um, out there that's going to let you sort of trace change over time. I mean, you, you have to engage um, the communities in sort of a deeply qualitative sense if you want to get a nuanced understanding of their origins and, and change over time. And you did pull it together very beautifully because it really just helps detail the story so much, but at the same time, you're getting this real sense of variation across um, these cities. Um, I, so getting to, to the type of politics that you, that you define within these settlements, I love that you call your brokers kingmakers um, in this book. And that's really the politics. Those are the actors at the heart of this book. And that's the sort of politics that, that we're reading about here. And really made me wonder about what sort of agency do politicians as well as urban citizens have vis-a-vis -vis these, these kingmakers. So another really fantastic line in your book, and this is this is a middle-class neighbor of, of a squatter settlement talking about the people in the uh, that live next door, and he describes them as a nuisance. Explaining the slums continued presence on the land, he remarked, illiterate people make for good voters in India. Ram Nagar's residents know that their status as poor, active voters anchors them in place. So this politics is absolutely central to their lives. Um, and yet there are these kingmakers um, that, that sit over these, um, uh, the, these voters and define so much. And then above them are the parties and candidates through which the kingmakers are drawing their power, but clearly they're, they're quite essential to this relationship. So I wanted to sort of draw on the fact that you, that you define this relationship in so much detail to think a little bit, to tell us a little bit about where in this relationship uh, in this relationship, do you think power lies? And then I'll come to, to a second part of that question. I don't want to make it too long at this point. So yeah, where does the power lie? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, thanks so much for that question. And it really cuts to the heart of, you know, you know, as you said, the, the politics of these spaces, you know, this vote bank politics and, you know, politicians in India cities use that term, vote banks. Um, but that I think masks um, incredible complexity um, in these hierarchical, relationships between sort of ordinary residents, the informal leaders that live in their neighborhoods um, and the politicians above them. And, and you know, I think this is one of the many reasons why I, I enjoyed reading your book so much, you know, looking at you know, um, similar dynamics you know, across these sort of three levels. 
So, you know, in terms of the brokers, you know, or the party workers, um, you know, those terms, you know, being, you can sort of use synonymously, they're such fascinating um, actors. Um, and they, they move to the settlement like any other resident. Um, very rarely, you know, when they move to the city and move to a slum settlement with their families, do they have some sort of plan to become a slum leader and then a party worker? There's usually some sort of element about them. Um, they're better educated than the average residents. They happen to have sort of a, a position that gives them sort of a, um, a modest amount of connectivity to the municipal government. You know, they're a, a chokidar, you know, at the municipality, like a, you know, a, um, or a, um, a clerk, um, or, or some sort of position, you know, again, that gives that, them that connectivity. Um, and then they then they then emerge, um, you know, as an informal leader. Um, but you know, as you just mentioned, um, you know, there's there is almost always multiple of these actors within a neighborhood, um, and they have to intensely compete with one another for a public following in the settlements. Um, and what this does, what this competition across the brokers does, is that it opens up significant agency on the part of ordinary residents to choose who am I going to go to for help. Who am I going to support? Um, there's interestingly not a great deal of um, you know brute coercion and violence um, that is wielded on behalf of the slum leaders themselves. Their authority primarily rests on their ability to demonstrate efficacy um, in improving local conditions. Um, they certainly line their pockets from doing this. They get patronage from parties. They get fees for residents. They have lots of material incentives to do this. Uh, but if they want to do it, um, they have to show that they're being effective. Um, and residents being able to vote with their feet um, does create and sort of disperse power more downward than I think a lot of the literature on you know, clientelism and distributed politics typically, typically gives ordinary voters credit for, right? So Susan Stokes you know, famously has this term, perverse accountability, that in clientelistic systems where you know, uh, uh, politics is non-programmatic, you know, politicians hold voters accountable for how they vote, um, whether or not they're gonna get access to something. That's really not at all um, what I saw sort of in these neighborhoods uh, in India cities, um, that power is much more dispersed, that residents do wield significant leverage um, because it's their support um, that undergirds all this informal authority. Politicians above them, interestingly, when they're seeking to extend their own connections down into these neighborhoods that they see as vote banks um, that are the kingmakers. I mean, these are the places that are gonna determine elections. Voter turnout in some settlements is significantly higher um, than property of middle-class neighborhoods. Um, and so, you know, from a politician's perspective, they want to lean on people that are popular in the neighborhood. But those who are popular are being defined by what residents essentially want. Um, and so residents are defining the grassroots nodes of these larger party organizational sort of networks, um, you know, in this, in this patronage system. Um, and so it's it's very interesting to consider, you know, where does the power lie? And I think I think it really is distributed. It's certainly asymmetrical. You know, it's it's really important not to over romanticize this. I mean, um, you know, these are neighborhoods that are again lack property rights. You know, residents, you know, living sort of way, uh, you know, daily wage to daily wage. Um, you know, politicians certainly have the upper hand because they have their hands on the strings of the state. Um, but in this larger sort of world, um, you know, residents have much more agency. Um, that I think, um, you know, scholars and, and, and certainly policymakers and practitioners sort of give ordinary residents credit for. 
I'm wondering if this is also a good space uh, point at which to ask you to talk a little bit more about your work with Tarek, with Tarek Thatchell, um, on, on, and of course your, uh, your um, sort of initial papers as well, on the fact that there's active selection going on on both sides. So citizens are actively choosing brokers and brokers are selecting clients. So, I mean, that work is really what, got, um, that's the first bit of work that I started reading from you guys and got so fascinated by the way you were thinking about the relationship between intermediate um, these brokers and voters. You want to say a little bit more about that? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I've been so lucky to be working with Tarek, I mean, uh, for what is now what um, six, seven years, um, you know, we've been able to conduct sort of a large scale survey of um, residents. Uh, we surveyed 629 of the actual slum leaders um, or, you know, or party workers, and then over 300 municipal politicians to get an even deeper sense um, to understand how do these networks sort of form and function. Um, and, and one of these questions um, that really is at the centerpiece of our um, article in the American Political Science Review is, um, how do sort of ordinary voters choose brokers? Under what conditions can they choose brokers? Um, and, and I've sort of described the world in which, you know, they have a lot of leverage um, in, in deciding um, where, who they're gonna turn to for help. Um, that, you know, interestingly, and I, you know, I, um, I anticipate we'll have, you know, space talk about sort of ethnicity and religion and caste, you know, these networks are extremely diverse, you know, with um, people of different castes and religions, um, regions of origin turning to people of, of you know, essentially non-co-ethnics, you know, people not of their caste, not of their religion, uh, because of the importance of turning to someone that can get things done. Um, and so, you know, much of, much of that sort of paper sort of asked that question, you know, in a context in which sort of low-income voters can choose these intermediaries, who do they turn to? Um, what do they look for in their intermediary? Why do certain people become slum leaders and others do not? Um, and you know, education and other markers of efficacy overwhelmingly sort of dominates, um, you know, much more than um, you know, things like co-ethnicity. You know, much of the literature sort of suggests that you know, politics unfolds in India, like much of South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, um, due to you know, um, ideas of co-ethnicity, you know, are you of my group? Um, you know, we find it's much more complicated than that. Um, we then have a companion article in the American Journal of Political Science and then asks um, from, this, from the slum leader's point of view, um, how do, why do they respond to certain residents and not others? So if I can just, you know, finally just put a plug uh, for, um, you know, we have a book together now, you know, extending on uh, many of the same themes, you know, from my book um, that, uh, yeah, just, you know, just got positive uh, reviews and will hopefully be coming out sometime in, in 2022. So, um, yeah, look forward to sharing that with you. That's very exciting. We'll have to have both of you come back and speak about that book then. Uh, but Adam, I'm going to move to two points now that um, about your main explanation that I find uh, really fascinating. So one is that the literature, uh, and this is building on the last question I asked, is that the literature has generally tended to hold clientelism, collective action, and partisan identification as, as very separate ideas. And your book really your explanation really sort of brings all of these together and I was just wondering if I could ask you to comment a little bit more on how exactly these interact in this very specific type of politics and and space in which um, you're examining them because we see all of them in there yeah I mean I, um, I'm not surprised that this is uh, you know happening in a conversation with you I think you you much better articulated sort of a point than I ever have you know in drawing the connections between these things I mean Politics in these neighborhoods is so bottom up um, and, they, and they have a great deal of autonomy in articulating what do we want. They're not waiting for elections to have things dangled in front of them. 
And so collective action, I mean, the, the, the most common form of sort of claiming things, you know, using, you know, the language uh, of, my, of my co-author Gabby, you know, claiming the state is doing what I refer to in the book as group-based claim making, that you want to show that you are a group of voters. Um, and so, you know, whether it's asking for a water tap um, or a school or a government medical camp, um, you will overwhelmingly find groups of residents, 15, 20, 30, going to a bureaucrat, going to a politician um, to ask for something, to demonstrate that they have that lokshakti, that people power. Overwhelmingly, it's in the presence of one of their local party workers who spearheads that effort. Um, so here we have sort of, you know, mediated politics um, in, a, in a context where, you know, the state is, is highly discretionary. Um, you know, maybe we'll give you attention, maybe we won't, maybe you have to wait a few weeks, maybe you have to wait a few months, maybe we'll never give you attention. Um, but in, in this sort of environment, it's that constant quotidian, you know, routine forms of collective action spearheaded by the local leaders um, that really sort of is, is the heartbeat, you know, of, of, of politics, you know, in these spaces. Um, and, you know, partisan politics is, is fascinating to consider, you know, in India cities as well. Um, I mean, you know, India is a three-tiered democracy, as you know, with um, elections at the local level, especially after decentralization reforms in the early 1990s. So you have elections for municipal ward councillors, you have elections for state um, uh, members of the Legislative Assembly, and then you have uh, elections for national parliaments. It is very common uh, for your municipal councillor, say, to be from the Congress party. Your MLA is from the BJP. Um, you know, the mayor is from the BJP, um, but the MP is from the Congress and the national government's the BJP. It's, it's, it's quite rare where um, it's completely lined up all the way down um, and you're completely cut off from any sort of sense of co-partisanship. Um, and and residents, um, you know, going along with the theme of agency, um, more than a third of sampled uh, residents um, that, I, that I surveyed for my book um, say that they have switched parties that they voted for over the last several elections. And if anything, I think that's an underestimate because of sort of social desirability bias to show that you're an active supporter of a party at any given time. Um, so it is extremely rare, you know, going back to this idea of the vote bank, it's very, very rare for an entire settlement to be a pukka, you know, for sure BJP settlement or a pukka Congress settlement. There's usually some degree of wiggle room going back and forth um, that is, is, is partially a consequence of, you know, the slum leaders within it choosing what party they're going to belong to and then their followers sort of shuffling behind them. Um, in, in some ways, it's very reminiscent from what you find, um, you know, in, in the villages in, in Punjab. And quite like that, I think the other thing that really fascinated me about this is that you is your take on the nature of competition so your story is about the about brokers is about their numbers and the density of their network and you separate between two types of competition that which exists across brokers and that between political parties and you tell us that it's the first type that between the competition between brokers that really matters and that the second type party competition could actually be very detrimental you want to tell us a little bit more about that Yes, uh, so glad you asked that. So, you know, another element that, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't spoken, um, you know, as much about, if at all, so far is that, I mean, not only are, not only is it interesting and important to consider the density of these networks, but their partisan representational balance. So in some settlements, all of the party workers will be for the Congress. In other settlements, they'll all be BJP, but most have some degree of balance between the two. It might be sort of top heavy for one or the other. Some are sort of perfectly split. You'll have sort of, you know, eight Congress workers and eight BJP workers. Um, and so I consider in the book, what is the implications 
of competition, partisan competition across these brokers within the neighborhood. You know, we have, you know, a large literature on sort of inter-party electoral competition and sort of formal elections. What about everyday forms of competition across brokers that don't share the same partisan identity? Um, and so what I find in the book, um, really drawing on, um, you know, not only my ethnography, but, you know, trying to show associations with um, the survey data is that, you know, this inter-party competition really has cross-cutting effects. On one hand, um, it's really important for your party to be in power at as many levels as you possibly can. Um, you're able to get more things done then. People are more likely to turn to you. You're getting more sort of patronage. You know, you have connections to those who are in power. And so this can and should even intensify competition among those party workers for a following um, that has downstream implications for their sort of intensified responsiveness and informal accountability. On the other hand though, um, and going back to my ethnographic case studies, there were many examples of problems arising because of this inter-party um, competition among slum leaders or, or party workers, um, that they would seek to demobilize the efforts of the other network, you know, so that the BJP workers want to, you know, uh, organize a protest uh, to fight for sewers. The Congress party workers don't want them to get popular, and so they tell residents, oh, oh stay home. They're not going to actually do anything. They're just getting paid from the, the party to do this. Um, you know, sometimes it bubbles over into physical violence. Um, you know, there was an election where um, the BJP candidate was pelted with rocks, you know, by the Congress party sort of workers and a, and a fight broke out. Um, and so there are these really cross-cutting effects. And so um, it, it probably shouldn't be surprising then that, you know, this relationship statistically then is, is, is muddled and sort of insignificant. Um, you know, it, it really required qualitative work to disentangle um, these sort of multiple impacts um, that occur when you get party workers of different parties living and operating in the same settlement. And in the same chapter in which you get into all of this qualitative detail, you're also using all of these details to, as you say, to use history to establish your causal argument. So it plays a very particular analytical um, role. Uh, but the other chapter that really struck me was chapter seven, in which you're taking so many steps back in trying to establish your argument. And so each time you come up with an argument, you're then saying, yes, but why do we see these differences? And let's go back one more step. And I thought that's a a really interesting way to do your analysis and that's really the power of the explanation you come up with but again is this I mean why did you think it was necessary to take so many steps back to establish that um, well I think I think one you know as you mentioned is um, really important analytically you know what is the sequencing of events here you know should we be concerned that you know more party workers move to settlements that are better developed and so you know the causal arrow is totally reversed um, you know for so many of these reasons I, I wanted to unpack these steps um, and you're able to do so in an interesting way in squatter settlements because they're at most 40 years old. Um, many of the original squatters are still in the settlements. Many of the, you know, the important sort of local political leaders who might not even be active anymore are still there. Um, and so it, it opens up all these doors to do sort of oral histories um, and collect those informal archives that I sort of talked about. Um, to get a sense of, you know, when when you all came here 40 years ago, this was a greenfield site. Um, there was there was no infrastructure, there was no services, there was no leadership, there was no connections to political parties. How did you get from that to what is happening right now? And letting people sort of uh, narrate that. Um, so, you know, many sort of important things came out in that, in in the sense of, you know, being able to sort of push aside explanations of, um, you know, party workers, you know, shifting around to settlements. I mean, they're they're deeply embedded and have been for a long time. 
um, you know, the importance of trying to understand why do these networks vary um, so much in their density across settlements. Um, and what I find in that, in that sort of um, uh, exploration is that um, two things where I drive this. One is the population of the settlements. Um, because of the idiosyncratic nature of different sort of pockets of the city, some squatter settlements sim simply have more room to grow than others. Um, and they usually grow through sort of gradual accretion. So it's not like in Latin America where 15,000 people just show up overnight um, and, 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 and sort of capture the land. Um, there's, a, there's a trickle um, over the course of several years that sort of, um, uh, you know, and then, then the settlement balloons and it expands out to sort of the limits um, of that area of the city, the limit between the mountainside and the existing middle-class neighborhood, you know, the, the space between the riverbed, you know, and that apartment building. Um, and so some settlements are simply larger because they have more space to grow. Um, and those settlements that are larger, they're bigger vote banks. They command more attention from politicians in the city. Um, politicians are much more likely to, to extend very limited party positions, uh, PUDs, you know, in the Hindi word, position, uh, to slum leaders in those uh, neighborhoods um, because they assume that, I don't know exactly how many people follow you, but you're in this really big slum settlement. Um, and so you're more likely to be able to bring out more people um, to rallies in the polls. And from the bottom up, if you're a resident that really wants to make a go at slum leadership, um, if, you're if you're residing in a big slum settlement, this is a huge vote bank to lead um, that not only is gonna sort of, you know, you'll be able to get lots of rents and patronage from, but many of these slum leaders aspire to be politicians themselves, um, especially municipal workers, or excuse me, municipal councilors, elect formally elected municipal councilors. So if you're a popular slum leader in a big slum, um, that is almost the entire size of the municipal ward, you can become a, you know, a formal elected representative. Um, and so for these reasons, sort of size is really important. And then the second one is levels of ethnic diversity. Um, and ethnic diversity is sort of defined in this context as jati, you know, which is sort of, you know, endogamous sort of subcasts or, or zak um, uh, religion, um, you know, a sizable sort of Muslim population, um, also sort of Ambedkar Buddhists and Sikhs. And of course, in addition to Hindus who make up a majority, um, and uh, region of origin. People are moving from different states in India. They're speaking different languages. Um, the more diverse the settlement is, the more likely there is to be sort of dense competitive party worker networks because multiple um, leaders emerge um, due to the fragment, the social fragmentation of the, the community at first. Um, and it creates these sort of conditions for sort of multiple nodes of informal authority and party leadership in the neighborhood. So, you know, I find that that is an interesting finding, um, you know, given a larger literature and political economy that posits um, and, and finds some evidence that there's a negative relationship between levels of community ethnic diversity and out outcomes and cooperation and public goods provision. You know, I find, you know, quite the opposite. The more diverse, the more developed the settlement tends to be, you know, because of um, how it shapes brokerage in the space. Absolutely. So Adam, coming towards the end of, of uh, the conversation, um, there, there's three related questions looking to um, sort of Indian politics, but a little bit to the future that I wanted to um, ask you about. And they're big questions, but just sort of like, you know, quick uh, responses from your work. And because you have such a unique insight into the formation of voters' partisan identification um, in India. And using that, I wanted to ask your help in make, uh, helping me make sense of ethnic politics in South Asia, because that's the big story. Together with clientelism, it's all about ethnic politics. And yet both your work and my work shows that, you know, it's, it's very hard to map that onto these settlements always. Sometimes it's clear, other times it's not. Um, so how then 
does your story add up to this big story on ethnic politics that we have in South Asia and specifically um, in India? Yeah, I really think that this is one of the most interesting facets of these neighborhoods. Um, um, you know, as, as another scholar um, uh, pointed out in, in, uh, in, a, in a separate book, you know, these are really microcosms of India. Um, they're incredibly diverse. Um, if you talk about something, you know, an economist would, you know, use like the fractionalization index. Um, what is the probability that two randomly selected people in the neighborhood are of a different social group? In the average settlement in my sample, there's over an 80% chance that two randomly selected people would be of a different jati. There's over 300 different jatis, you know, subcasts living across these 111 settlements. Um, the fractionalization score for um, state diversity, the, the, the state that the migrants moved from, um, is over 30, you know, over 30 percent, um, and it's uh, just over 20 percent for religion. Um, so if you in the average settlement, if you randomly pick two people, there's about a 20 percent chance that they would be of a different religion. And overwhelmingly, this is representing sort of Hindus and Muslims living side by side. And, and you can see this in the neighborhood. You'll, you'll see a masjid, you know, you'll see a, um, a mandir you know, right on the same alleyway. Um, and this is partially, you know, it's not a, it's partially a consequence of just limited space to squat in the city, that there are desirable places to be, um, to be near local labor markets. Um, and it pushes people together um, of these different groups in ways that, you know, th that I showed through my interviews, they didn't even anticipate upon arrival. You know, you know your cousin is living in that settlement. They're going to help you get set up with a job. Suddenly, you go there and you realize that it's not just you know people moving from that area in Rajasthan. You know, there's some there's some Gujaratis. There's some people that have come from West Bengal. Um, there's a there's a community of of Muslims from Uttar Pradesh. You know, that moved. Um, and so, um, ethnic politics in these spaces um, unfolds in ways that that really cut against the grain of my expectations. Um, and 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 as you had mentioned, you know, Tarek and I have really pushed um, forward on this sort of idea. Um, you know, slum leaders have incentives to build multi-ethnic coalitions beneath them. They're not, they're not thinking about minimum winning coalitions in the way that um, politicians do. Um, they want to become as popular as they possibly can and developing a parochial relationship of only helping your sort of co-caste or co-religionists is not productive um, um, in these spaces. Um, and so, you know, we find both in terms of uh, experimental data, um, drawing on survey experiments, and observational data, asking them who's actually going to them, and qualitative data of just simply hanging out with these slum leaders and seeing who's coming to their house, um, that it's extremely diverse. Um, you know, you have people of different castes going to leaders of different castes. Um, one other really surprising thing, um, and I'm still, I still try to square this with, you know, the larger narrative of Hindu, major, Hindu majoritarian politics in India, um, which is, of course, you know, very distressing um, and has, you know, become even more sort of um, worrisome, um, you know, especially after the 2019 uh, election, you know, where the Modi government's really doubled down on, on marginalizing, um, you know, India's Muslim population in, in a number of different ways. Um, but um, about a quarter of the slum leaders that Tarek and I surveyed, 629 slum leaders, a quarter of the Muslim slum leaders are party workers for the BJP. A, a fifth of the ordinary resi Muslim residents um, are open supporters of the BJP. Um, and, you know, when, when I would ask them, um, you know, why? I mean, discursively, we're talking about two, not discursively, I mean, we're talking about two cities, Jaipur and Bhopal, that experience intense Hindu-Muslim riots, um, you know, uh, in its post-independence history. Um, and much of the segregation in the city is due to um, 
and, and Christoph Jaffele um, really nicely shows this and Laurent Geyer, his co-author, really nicely shows this in a book, um, this sort of processes of essentially ghettoization, you know, of, of Muslims sort of moving. So you do find massive segregation in the cities, but still a lot of religious diversity in the slum settlements. Um, but you, when, I, when, when asking them, you know, why do you support the BJP, you know, it was, it was, you know, we've supported the Congress for, you know, 60, 70 years, and we've gotten nothing from them. Um, they take it, they, they take um, us for granted as, as their vote bank. Um, but this BJP politician, we hate what he says, but he actually gave us a sewer line. Um, and so we're seeing the potential sort of material benefits of, of potentially supporting them. Um, you know, and so looking at the ways that these um, micro coalitions are built within neighborhoods is so important because they then aggregate up into electoral politics in the city. Um, they produce a lot of the surprising findings that I think that we see, especially in local politics. Um, but again, I mean, I think, it, you know, if, if, if I or Tarek and I had done a lot of our work now, um, I mean, the, the drumbeat of Hindi majoritarianism, you know, the, the, the Citizenship Amendment Act, um, you know, the, the um, reversal of Article 370 in Kashmir, um, you know, the, the citizen registry, you know, in Assam, all of these acts, um, quotidian violence against India's Muslims, you know, that's, you know, given a green light um, by elected, you know, BJP officials, would we, would we see, you know, would we see the same sort of things? Um, you know, I really think that space for some of these multi-ethnic coalitions are, are coming under great strain, um, you know, because, you know, because of these larger sort of politics at the national and state level. So you've already answered my, my next question of how do we then want to think about the sort of entrenchment of the BJP that we see in India. But given that, let me just ask you finally then, what do you think are, are uh, what hopes do we have of more programmatic politics in South Asia? And what are the policy lessons um, that you think your book holds on how the state should engage with citizens in urban slums? Yeah, um, I, I don't think I'm, I'm super optimistic that, you know, there, there's going to be a quick turn, you know, at least in, in urban India towards like a, you know, a robust programmatic politics. And I think that's, you know, for a number of reasons. I mean, you know, politicians benefit from the um, insecurities and vulnerabilities of the urban poor. Um, they explicitly say, and as I sort of outlined in my book, we're willing to give you water, we're willing to extend an electricity line. What we don't want to give you is a patta, you know, a, a, a property title, because that's going to snap the dependency relationship. Um, and so, you know, so much of politics is mediated and discretionary. I mean, Ward, Ward Baronshot, uh, who does incredible work on, on uh, urban India as well, sort of refers to in the Indian state as a mediated state. Um, and so I think that this is going to sort of certainly continue um, with us. One of the other things that sort of prevents this, um, I think there's a real need for class-based mobilization in India cities that is essentially absent right now. Um, if you go back to the 1970s, there, there actually was robust um, class-based movements, especially in Bhopal. Um, organized by the Communist Party, um, and uh, this 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 one uh, gentleman uh, um, uh, Ali Khan, uh, you know, who was you know called the the Lion of Bhopal, um, who really organized people across settlements. But now, you know, as I mentioned in the book, you know, these forms of collective action and leadership are so fragmented across neighborhoods. Um, you think there would be you know lots of incentives to band together to ask for things at a larger level and increase the size of the vote bank. That almost never happens. Um, so yeah, I think a, a real need for that. Um, but then in terms of sort of policy lessons, I think I think one of the biggest ones is, you know, in much of the um, in much of India's sort of urban development efforts now, um, it pays a lot of lip service to participation and community-driven development, um, but it seeks to depoliticize uh, places that have engaged in politics to sort of admit, advance their material interests. So if you read 
paperwork, for instance, of Rajiva Wasiojana, um, which was another sort of large urban development program for the urban poor in India. The, the, um, the documents given to municipalities explicitly says that these neighborhoods should create new CBOs, community-based organizations, and they should not work with um, uh, local party operatives. Well, those party operatives, you know, are not have not just simply captured that space. I mean, they they are they have been pushed up by residents in many ways, and they're engaging in this problem-solving activities. You know, um, at very least, um, I think any any attempt to circumvent them uh, will fall flat and not be seen as legitimate. Um, and even you know, at at, a, at, a, at its most extreme, you know, the existing leaders will seek to undermine um, projects that don't involve them. Um, you know, because of the need to sort of credit claim, you know, that I'm I'm part of this larger project. So, I, I really think that you know, despite this larger sort of veneer of you know participatory developments and community-driven developments, um, that practitioners and policymakers really need to think carefully about you know that there is actual associational activity in these neighborhoods, not unlike those in middle-class neighborhoods. There is existing leadership that's doing stuff. Um, how do we actually engage these actors um, to benefit these communities? Excellent point, Adam. And finally, what's next on your research agenda? What are you working on now? Well, I've already mentioned the, the book with Tarek. So yeah, very excited that, you know, um, that should hopefully be coming out uh, next year. Um, one other project that Tarek and I are launching into um, that I'm, I'm also really looking forward to that the pandemic, of course, has somewhat put this on hold, but um, we've become really fascinated in India's constellation, huge constellation of small towns towns under 100,000 people that fall under India's 74th constitutional amendments. So they are considered urban spaces and treated as such and, you know, in terms of India's decentralization policies and its fiscal federalism. Um, but they've gone essentially completely understudied. Um, and what we're finding in Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh is there's really interesting sort of um, themes and patterns of local state capacity. Some of these towns are doing much better in terms of actually spending the funds that are being devolved to them. Um, we know very little about electoral politics in these spaces. Um, you know, many of these places are sort of mundi towns, you know, these sort of local sort of marketplaces um, that are, are really becoming lively and they're sort of bursting at the seams, you know, in terms of their, their growth. Um, you know, almost 50% of India's urbanization story is happening in these little towns. Um, and so, you know, we're hoping that this is sort of a larger project um, that will sort of help us get a, get a grasp of, um, you know, political and economic change in these spaces. Um, and then finally, um, I'm really excited to start a new project with Tanu Kumar, um, who will be starting as an assistant professor at the Claremont Graduate School on, and actually this goes back to an earlier question of yours, um, on different types of neighborhoods in India's cities on unauthorized settlements. That, um, in the periphery of many of India's cities, it is no longer the, squat, the poor squatter settlements um, that sort of defines informality. It is these lower middle-class and middle-class neighborhoods that are being planned by developers, but they're unsanctioned by the by the Vikas Pradikaran, the development authority. And so they're in many ways just as informal as slum settlements, but the residents are much more better off. Um, they work in the formal economy. Um, so interestingly, the political economy of these spaces are sort of trapped in between. Politicians don't consider them to be interesting vote banks because they see them as middle class, um, you know, but they also don't benefit from sort of the civil society aspects of you know what Partha Chatterjee might talk about. You know, close ties of bureaucrats and elites in the city. So, not surprisingly, there's a huge ring of these unauthorized colonies. You know, in Jaipur, we're focusing on um, that are void of social public services um, and and are struggling to sort of get authorized. So, you know, hopefully that project will sort of take up you know politics in those spaces. 
All of that sounds really exciting, Adam, and I'm certainly going to be watching and reading. Thank you so much again for talking to us today um, about this. This has been a fascinating conversation about cities, about vote banks, about voters, and, and where the power lies in this very unique form of politics. Thank you so much. Amanda, thank you so much for having me and for the you know, really thought-provoking questions. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at between the lines at ids.ac.uk.